Looks fun, doesn't it? We'll be doing that together here in a couple weeks, Friday and Saturday, April 22nd and 23rd. And if you've not yet signed up for Feed My Starving Children, you can do so today right through these doors of the Journey Wall. You can also donate there or donate at the church well, whenever you're ready. But we're excited about uh, this great opportunity to partner together and care about kids that are facing hunger. As well, this morning, I want to uh, profile with Eddie Laraga. Y'all know Eddie? Some of you? Okay. A few people? Anyone? Okay. His, his wife and his mom. Okay. <laughs> Eddie's uh, one of the leaders on our men's ministry leadership team. Great, great guy here. Hope you have a chance to, to get to know Eddie. And uh, Eddie and uh, Pastor Brian Klein and the entire men's ministry leadership team has done a great job putting together a new ministry, which is going to be... Uh, trained tomorrow and then implemented in the months to come. I'm very excited about this ministry as it's one that I've been a part of in the past in my previous ministry in Colorado. And um, you heard about it just briefly there during the announcement section, but I asked Eddie if he'd come forward and share with us a little bit about Men in Action and why your ministry team is so excited about this. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, Adrian. You got it? Check, check. Hey, there we go. Adrian. Um, yeah, we, we are excited. Uh, the men's ministry team, um, we're equipping men, we're encouraging men, we're engaging men. And through that, up until this time, we've been um, equipping men through Forge, through the messages of truth inside of uh, Mondays and Wednesday mornings. Uh, we've been encouraging men to attend events and conferences. Uh, in fact, uh, um, a car full of guys were sharpened here over the weekend and got back about one or two in the morning, uh, and they were here at first service. So, uh, and sleeping. then, yeah, sleeping. <laughs> uh, and the third thing, engaging men um, and locking shields together. So we wanted to this men in action. We wanted to create this ministry uh, or help with this ministry to give men uh, the opportunity to serve and engage together uh, throughout this uh, throughout the church body. That's great. That's great. T tell us a little bit about men, men in Action and how you anticipate that it will strengthen men, how it might even strengthen the church. What will this do for guys here who participate? Yeah, so uh, strengthening men, I think, uh, first of all, it's going to give us the uh, opportunity to use power tools. So, <laughs> Men, raise your hand. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a plus. That's a definite plus. Um, but we have, we have this definition that's, that's inside of, uh, that, we, that is woven inside of our men's ministry. And it's the definition of a godly man. And it uses the acronym of REAL, um, R-E-A-L. So uh, rejecting passivity, um, expecting God's greater reward, uh, accepting responsibility, and leading courageously. And we know that men are... Uh, already serving in areas of the ministry or areas in, inside the church body. Um, but we really wanted to give men the opportunity. Uh, I mean, what would it look like if men carried this mantle? Those that are looking to serve right now carry this mantle of rejecting passivity, of, of rejecting that passivity, passivity of someone else is going to do this. Hmm. Um, expecting God's greater reward in this, uh, giving up sacrificing time, talents, and treasures to, to advance the kingdom of heaven. Accepting responsibility. The new commandment I gave you, love one another. What if men, hundreds, hundreds of men picked up this mantle inside of our church body to lead courageously and to serve uh, those in need inside the church? Hmm. 
It's a great call for men. I'm excited about this being a part of our ministry here at Carnegie Free. And, uh, you know, the thing that's so great about this ministry, in my experience, is that it provides not only for guys to develop great relationships with each other as they're serving, as they're using power tools, but also it really helps um, single parents and widows and widowers, others in distress, in distress, by providing a safety net of care in which, on a month-to-month basis, a single mom or a widow will anticipate that this team of four or five guys will come over to my house and help me with projects that I can't get to for whatever reason. And if we have a church of men who are leading in that way, we're going to make a difference. And so um, I know there's so many different ways that the guys can be involved with ministries here, but if you don't yet have a ministry here at Carney Free, I'd encourage you to consider this one. You come out tomorrow at 6.30, and guys will get trained up and have dinner too, right? Yep, and we're in the back at the kiosk. Uh, you can see myself or Brian Klein uh, cool. to sign up uh, for the Men in Action. That's great. Let's pray for this new ministry. We really pray that uh, this would be a difference maker in our church, and I uh, want to pray for our church family as well as we open up this morning's message. Father in heaven, thanks for Eddie for his uh, willingness to come forward this morning. Thanks for the entire men's ministry leadership team and Pastor Brian and their willingness to engage this wonderful ministry such that uh, widows and widowers and single parents and others in distress within our church body would know that they are loved and they will not have to go through it alone. And uh, we do pray, God, that as a result of this ministry and many others that are happening here, every single person in this church would know they matter so deeply to God and matter so deeply to this community. Father, thanks for the men in this church, the way so many men in this church do fulfill that acronym of what a real man is. And, And we just desire, God, we desire to increasingly become sacrificial leaders. And so we pray that would be the case for all of us as we listen to you on any number of different areas of service, though, that we could be involved in. But we do pray that this would be a tremendous ministry for the men here in our fellowship and that you would be honored and glorified through it all. Now, Father, as we enter into the Word of God, we ask that you would teach us that this would not be a bunch of words from Adrian. Lord knows we don't need that. We need something much, much better than that. We need your words, Lord God, and so we ask that you would... Uh, anoint the words of my mouth, and you would uh, speak through the meditations of our hearts, that they would all be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Eddie. Appreciate it, bro. Well, you might have noticed this morning that you have a little bit different bulletin than perhaps you anticipated when you got your hand out, and I'd intended this week to Uh, launch into the first of the seven deadly sins as we're going through this series, One is Greater Than Seven, as we seek to understand how God is so much greater than all of our temptations and all of our weaknesses. And I'm very excited for that series, but by Wednesday afternoon, I just couldn't preach it, at least not for this Sunday. We'll return to it next week, and I'm excited to return to it next week. Um, but we've had some events in our church family over the past several weeks, really the past couple months, that have been very, very difficult to process. And I felt like it was necessary to just pause on this series for this Sunday and speak about some things that are on my heart and I know are on many of your hearts as we all process many events that have happened within our church family over the past weeks. I'm a, I'm a preacher. Uh, I like vision, I like to have a plan, I like strategy, but more than that, I'm a pastor. Uh, I, uh, I believe in shepherding a lot, 
and your other pastors do as well, and your elders do also. And I want you to know as I begin this message that I really believe in the important priority of shepherding the church, and I feel like this is one of those Sundays where I, I need a shepherd. And so I'm going to teach, and we're going to pray, and we're going to shepherd through some um, events that we've experienced together as a church over the past weeks, and then next Sunday we'll return to one is greater than seven. Is that okay? If you're on the, the prayer request list, or if you've read the newspapers, you know it's been a, a difficult season for our community, and uh, the prayer requests have been intense. As you know, our town has experienced uh, suicides, and uh, our church has experienced uh, many many funerals recently. There are a number of families who have had to bury their sons and daughters, which no mom or dad should ever have to do. And there are others who have been processing through grave evil that has happened to them, incredible injustice, as I've had so many people coming to my office, and I know the other pastors have as well, in which people are processing uh, drunk driving accidents or a divorce or someone who's been unfaithful, or uh, some other experience of, of evil, of real evil. And uh, I was doing a funeral service with Pastor Mike Shields a week and a half ago, and so grateful for Pastor Mike and the fellowship that we share together. And he shared with me, he was the previous lead pastor here for 12 years, if you're newer here, and uh, he shared with me that during one six-year window, he thinks the church did five memorial services. And we've done six memorial services here in 2016. And sometimes you just have that kind of season. In any church family, there is that kind of season from time to time. And for whatever reason, we're in that season right now. And so uh, I, I feel like it's, it's necessary to process this together for a bit. And particularly so given the events of last week, uh, perhaps you know that there's a dear 18-year-old boy who is part of this church family named Isaiah Bauer who uh, was hit by a car as he crossed 39th Street. And, um, you know, he's in a rough place. He's in critical condition. And um, uh, his parents, uh, Kristen and Charles, are, are hurting, as are his siblings. And so we want to pray for them today. And... Uh, and we also just want to care for our church. And there are many, many other needs like this that are going on right now. So this morning we are going to pray for the brokenhearted. We're going to pray for these families that are hurting. And pray for the Andersons here at the end of the service as well. Ralph and Sharon Anderson who are struggling and have just uh, lost their son Scott. We're going to pray for them. Uh, we'll pray for these families and for you if you need prayer. I want to pray for you as well. But also I want to teach today around this topic of when the church hurts. How do we respond when the church hurts? How do we love? What, what does our love look like? What does community look like when the church hurts? What are appropriate emotional answers when the church is hurting? What are appropriate intellectual answers when people are suffering injustice or evil? And so we'll speak to all of that for a few moments this morning. Even if you're not in a grief place right now, you're not grieving right now, you're rejoicing today, that's great. I, I want to rejoice with you. Um, but you all know, as I do, grief is coming, is it not? <laughs> it, it comes for all of us. And so 
Uh, I would encourage you to take notes this morning because it is coming for all of us, and I don't want to just be a talking head up here. I want to equip the church. And so part of what I do on Sunday morning is hopefully equip you to be ministers of the gospel wherever you might go and to provide answers to others and help to others in their need wherever you might go this very week. So here's the first response, I believe, when the church hurts. Your prayers matter. Your prayers matter to one another in this room, and your prayers matter to God. And sometimes it's hard to believe that because we go through periods of great grief and we feel like our prayers are going up to the ceiling, and if we're honest, it sometimes feels like our prayers are coming back down and hitting us on the toes. That's the way sometimes it feels when we're going through times of great grief where we see someone hurting for months at a time. Let's just admit that. And I am the first to admit that when I get to heaven, I have a number of questions for God about prayer. But this I know. This I know. During seasons where I have really consistently bathed certain prayer requests before the presence of God, I've frequently seen answers. I'm looking at my friend Dr. Sharon Brandt right now, and I remember she told me not too long ago that that she uh, writes down her prayer requests and bathes them. She doesn't do the dive bomb approach to prayer, but she bathes them before God, and she's experienced 63 miraculous answers to prayer. She's a doctor, and she prays over her patients and, and prays over other needs. She's experienced 63 miraculous answers to prayer. We experience more as we bathe our prayers to God. We, we, uh, we don't just dive bomb them. We, we bathe these prayers and consistently bring them to God. This is the model of prayer given to us by Jesus who said, keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. And again, uh, sometimes it feels like uh, we don't see answers, but we trust that God will answer in appropriate time. And uh, as I was thinking about prayer this week and praying for the various families that I know are hurting, I went to Psalm 27, which says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then King David goes on to say, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set my high and set my feet high upon a rock. It's interesting that we experience this in the midst of prayers. We give ourselves to the ministry of prayer. We find that God sets our feet on the rock. He gives us a sense of peace in the midst of trouble as we dwell with him in prayer. It goes on to say, hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek my face. Seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And there's some people in this room here today who feel like you've been forsaken by the people who were closest to you. And you need to hear this. That it's in prayer, in the presence of the one who alone is God, in the presence of the Almighty that you realize, though all else might be stripped away, there is one who will not forsake you. There is one, no matter who else leaves you, even if father and mother would forsake you, it says here, the Lord will receive you. 
And then King David reflects, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he gives us this instruction, which is amongst the most difficult instructions for us in prayer. Wait on the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait on the Lord. When we're suffering and when we're praying, this is the hardest thing for us to do. But it's oftentimes what God has for us because we are refined in the process of waiting for him to do something great. And we trust that when he delays, there is a good reason. Your prayers truly matter. King David goes on to say in Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. So we learn in prayer to wait on the Lord, to be still in his presence, to know that in time he will answer. Second, we care for the church community. When the church hurts, we acknowledge that we need community. We need each other in these times. This is one of the gifts of pain, if you will, that when we're in pain, we recognize that we need one another, that there are Uh, is no room for Lone Ranger Christians, that we can't do it by ourselves, that we really need each other. The question is often asked when people are suffering, where is God in this? And the question could more simply be stated, where is the church in this? Because when you see people suffering, you will frequently see the church right around them, and the church is nothing less than the body of Christ. And friends, that's not merely a metaphor, that is the truth, that if you want to know what God's body looks like, what Christ's body looks like, it's you and me, it's the church on mission together for his purposes. Wherever you see pain, that's where you'll see the body of Christ. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. So you think about that passage. What it's saying is sometimes God would entrust to you some kind of suffering experience such that you would be able to use that suffering experience to comfort others in a similar suffering experience. He might even allow affliction to come to you such that you can show genuine care for someone else later on who's going through a period of affliction. And God intends that we would be a mobile hospital of sorts. He gives the gift of the church with all the different gifts that we have, all the different abilities that we have, and some of us would be first responders when there's times of great need, kind of like ENTs, we're right there in the hospital with someone in their time and their place of need, and others of us, like this men in action group, will just be there month after month after month over the long haul demonstrating the love of Christ, more like physical therapists, if you will. But we each have a different role to come around those who are in need, and right there, God brings the community together in these times. God has us go through pain and then comforts us with the comfort of Christ such that we would be a comfort to others who are experiencing pain. And i got to tell you, this church does it really well. Really well. What I've witnessed over these past months has been remarkable. The dozens of people will come together, life groups will come together when someone dies and provide meals for that family. And on the occasion of the funeral, provide 
gigantic meals for everyone who attends. I've never seen that before. Uh, I've witnessed people who write cards, letters of sympathy, on the week that someone loses a loved one. And then the month after someone loses a loved one. And then another month thereafter, still writing letters. We had police officers here this past week who chose to show up and talk to middle schoolers and high schoolers in the midst of their grief as they are processing what happened to their high school classmate. They didn't have to be here. They weren't on duty. They chose to be here. Or another family that I know of in the church who's only been attending for a few weeks, but they are privy to what happened this past week, and so they chose to cancel their meetings in the afternoon and go sit with the grieving family in the hospital all of Wednesday afternoon. This kind of beautiful response wells up within the body of Christ, and I just want to say that whatever you might do for someone who is hurting, when you do it, it will feel small. But it's vitally important that you do it anyway, because God takes your small gift and your small service and your small service and my small gift And he brings them all together to lift up the body of Christ and strengthen the body of Christ as it were when it feels like it's about to fall apart. I really enjoy Christian apologetics. uh, My my friend Tim Stratton and I like to debate back and forth and talk about different Christian apologetics. But, But I am convinced that the number one reason that we have to believe that Christianity is true is nothing less than Christian love. The greatest apologetic Francis Schaeffer once said, the greatest apologetic is not all of our intellectual arguments. The greatest apologetic the world has ever seen is Christian love. When you see genuine Christian love, the outpouring of support from a community that comes alongside those who are hurting, it is a witness to the love of Christ that we happen to see in the Gospels as we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is it not? And we see that on a regular basis. We get the blessing of seeing that on a regular basis here in this church family. Third, when the church hurts, we draw together and we empathize. Our pain serves to draw us together and it gives us chances to empathize with one another. Empathy is one of the most marvelous ways that God gives us to love each other. You all know the word sympathy, and sympathy means to say, I'm sorry for what you are going through. And that's obviously a good thing that we can say for each other. But empathy goes a step further beyond saying, I'm sorry for what you're going through. Empathy seeks to walk a mile in someone else's shoes, to identify with what someone else is experiencing, and take on some of their burden onto yourself, to feel some of the hurt that someone else is feeling, to say, I am here with you in the midst of this pain. And this is what Christians do for each other. We empathize with one another because this was the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus chose to leave heaven for earth, he was choosing empathy. When Jesus endured temptation for our sake as we endure temptation, he was empathizing with us. When Jesus endured rejection, when he became a man of sorrows for our sake, he was choosing empathy. When Jesus wept at the death of his dear friend Lazarus, he was choosing empathy. 
It's not that he was faking it. He truly was weeping with his dear friends Mary and Martha as they mourned over the loss of their dear brother Lazarus. He was empathizing with us. And when Jesus hung it all on a cross to give himself up for us, he was going way beyond words that empathy can even begin to describe to say, I love you and I am here with you and identify with you. I give myself up for you. This is the love of our Savior. He chooses to draw near to the brokenhearted. He identifies with us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are, one who is familiar with sorrow and with grief as we are, and therefore we draw near to his throne room such that we would find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. He is our model that we then provide for one another. Now let me just give a a little bit of warning here to the church as we care for others in time of pain. Empathy doesn't try to fix it. Empathy, Empathy does not try to fix someone else's problems. It gets close to other people in their problems. Empathy leaves the work to the Messiah that only the Messiah can do. We do what we can, but we cannot fix other people's pain. And that's okay. And number two, I'm going to step on a few toes here. Empathy does not state trite cliches and then walk away. Because they make light of other people's pain. Okay? There are a few things that we sometimes say that are very well-meaning that actually don't help when people are in the midst of great grief. The Bible takes very seriously our grief process. In fact, in the Old Testament, when someone would lose a loved one, uh, God would say in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, go out and put on sackcloth and ashes for 40 days and intentionally give yourself to the process of grief because this will not be overcome quickly. It's going to take time. You have to intentionally grieve. And real Christian empathy, real Christian sympathy, doesn't make light of the painful circumstances that other people in this room are going through by saying things like, let go and let God. Or, God just needed another baby in heaven. Or, God is in control, just let it be. Or, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Or on and on we could go. Again, there's a a note of truth. There could be a note of truth in any of those, and there's certainly divine truth in Romans 8.28, but people frequently cannot hear those words when they're in deep places of grief. And frequently when we say them, they make light of the painful experiences that people are going through. Instead, we just nestle up close to people in their pain and we choose to bear with some of their burdens. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and then mourn with those who mourn. What's he saying there? He's saying match the emotion 
of others that you are with. So if someone else is rejoicing, you can rejoice with them. You can be happy with them, happy for them. But if someone else is grieving, to be happy while they're grieving will make them feel guilty. So we mourn with those who mourn. Or how about this passage from Proverbs 25? It says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is the one who sings songs to a heavy heart. When you go happy-go-lucky in the presence of someone who is mourning, it, it, it sometimes has the effect of making them feel even lower. It sometimes has the effect of making them feel more guilty. And so we match the pain that people are experiencing. And of course, we focus on heaven. That certainly has its place. But, but per perhaps most important, what we do is offer our sympathy, our prayers, our cards, our listening ear, hugs in time of needs. We empathize. Fourth, I think we need to speak to the question, where is God in this? And I want to say that the God of the universe is still in charge. No matter what your suffering experience might be today, the God of the universe remains in charge. This is perhaps the biggest question that any person in any worldview has to answer. How could an all-loving, all-God allow this pain to happen? Whatever that specific pain might be for you. And that's a huge question that any religion of the world, any philosophy needs to answer. I am personally convinced that the Christian worldview provides far better answers to that question than any other worldview though, that is available to us. And it begins with the reality that most of the pain that we experience here on earth is a result of other people's choices, is it not? Or a result of our own choices. Now some of the pain though, that we experience certainly uh, doesn't seem to have a specific cause and we trust that one day God in his sovereignty will redeem even that. I'll get to that in just a moment. But most of the pain that any person experiences is due to our own sinful choices or the sinful choices of other people. And God decided in the way that he ordered this world that he could not order a world in which the highest ethic, which is love, would be possible without the reality of human choice. Human choice is built in to the way God ordered the universe because God decided that the greatest ethic is love and love could not be had without human freedom. You see, there are some things that even God cannot do. God, for example, could not make a square circle. God, for example, cannot make a married bachelor. He cannot lie, the Bible tells us. He cannot tempt he cannot bring evil to us. And he cannot create free moral agents who have the opportunity to choose his way or reject his way. One time for all eternity, but also on a day in and day out basis, we have the opportunity to choose his way or reject his way. And he could not create free moral agents like that who could never go wrong. You see, in a world where love is the supreme ethic, freedom must be built in. And we know this intuitively. Love is the highest value in the universe, and love simply cannot be coerced. This is a good time for mom and dads to go like this. Oh yeah, I know that with my kids. 
But even so, I introduced them to the world, knowing full well that they could rebel, and they would rebel, just like I rebelled. But I still love them so much, and I still want them to freely choose what is right, and so God created us. This really informs our language and the way we speak about God and the way we speak about evil and sovereignty and providence because God is not always in meticulous control. Hear me clearly now. God is not always in meticulous control of every little detail that we experience. He leaves some to human free will. In his providence, he is in charge and he set the rules and he established the boundary lines and he will in the end be victorious over all the universe and all of that is under his control. But because he is not to blame for things like rape or molestation or divorce or infidelity or drunk drivers or on and on, whatever the injustice might be, then we are left in a place where we really can trust God, that we really can believe He is all-loving and He is not to blame. And so as a result, we are left in a place that we can freely blame those who perpetrate those terrible sins, including ourselves when we happen to do that. So we don't blame God for awful things that happen in this universe. We blame the sinner or the enemy or a culture that has gone amok or ourselves, but we continue to worship a God who is altogether pure and holy and good. Can I please get an amen right now? Oh my goodness. We have to trust that our God is good. We have to believe that our God is good. Otherwise, if we can't trust that He is always and all the time loving, we will not be inclined to go to Him in prayer. Now, God still, of course, stops much evil that happens in this world. I don't doubt that at all. If the Holy Spirit was to stop intervening in this world, the, the world would collapse in upon itself. The Holy Spirit restrains much evil, and the Holy Spirit answers many, many prayers to prevent much evil in the world. But if God was to intervene every single time evil was possible in this world, then there would be no free will, and there would be no love. There would only be robots. Because the truth is, there's a whole lot of evil right here and across this room, is there not? The vein of evil does not grow through the hearts of drug dealers and dictators alone. It goes through every single human heart. And so every one of us use times like this to recognize, oh, I have fallen short of the glory of God. Would you have me again, Lord Jesus? I repent. I recognize my own failures. Would you have me? And he will. He will. I love uh, the position of Jesus that demonstrates the heart of God toward free human creatures who have gone wrong when he is about to be crucified by the leaders of Israel and by the Romans, and he goes up to a hilltop looking over Jerusalem, and he weeps over Jerusalem. He's up on the, the side of the mountain, on the Mount of Olives. I've been there. You can see all of Jerusalem there, and he's looking over it. And if you can just imagine the, this portrait, he's crying over the city that he's been longing for. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, and you're about to kill me too. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you wouldn't have me. You weren't willing you weren't willing. 
But this is the heart of our God, the loving heart of our God, to long for those who would do evil and turn from him, to long for every single one of us. We give thanks that God is ultimately in charge and his will will ultimately prevail, even though right now we experience tremendous suffering. Christ has promised that we will experience suffering this side of eternity, but he's also promised that he will be victorious over that suffering and that suffering will not have the final word in our lives. Here's number five. We need to remind one another and remind ourselves that Jesus came to overcome evil and ultimately he will, right? Ultimately, he will overcome evil. And we hold on to this in the midst of any suffering that we experience today and the suffering that so many in our church are experiencing today. We remind each other that ultimately, Christ will prevail. That he came the first time and he demonstrated his mercy. And he's coming the second time and he's demonstrating his justice. Can I get an amen to that? He came the first time and he demonstrated his love. He came the second time and he's demonstrating righteousness. Came the first time and he demonstrated grace. He's coming the second time in truth and in justice and in righteousness to prevail against all evil, to redeem every experience of suffering that you might have today. Ultimately, our God will prevail and your suffering will not have the final word. Here's what Revelation 21 says. Here's our promise. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. One day God is going to renew all things. He's going to make whatever we're experiencing today as a church family. He's going to make it right. This past week as I grieved with... Uh, with many. I reflected upon a family that's been good, good friends of ours um, for, I don't know, 15 years. And uh, they've experienced intense suffering, and they also are amongst the most godly people I've ever met. And God's really redeemed their suffering, and God used their suffering on so many occasions to bless so many other people, to identify with so many other people in their pain. And uh, they lost their, their first daughter to a very rare disease when she was six months old. And they knew that they would lose her eventually. They were told that throughout this woman's pregnancy, and they decided anyway to take it to full term, even though the doctors counseled them not to. And uh, they enjoyed Baby Joy. They named her Baby Joy for six months. And then she died. And uh, I remember asking my friend Rod how he got through it because he would regularly talk about the pain that he still experienced over the loss of baby Joy. And he said, you know, Adrian, I've gotten through it for a couple reasons. One, God has chosen to use that pain in so many other people's lives. He's chosen to redeem it that way. And so I give thanks to him that he's able to use our suffering in so many others' lives and uh, certainly did so. And uh, he gave thanks to God because God used that suffering to develop perseverance and develop character and to develop hope, just as the Bible says that he will. So he's done that in Rod and Jennifer's lives. And, and then he said this. He said, I have no one to blame for this. Sometimes I wish I had someone to blame for this. But I know this didn't come to us because we sinned. I can't blame someone else because they did evil to us. Um, and I certainly don't want to blame God because I know God is good and he is not to blame. But this is what I know. 
I know that my Redeemer lives. And I don't know the answer why, but I know the one who has all the answers to my whys. And I know who. He said, I know my Redeemer lives. And in the words of Job, he said, I will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Maybe you'd say this with me before we pray, would you please? I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. I will see him with my own eyes. Mm. Do you believe that you will see him with your own eyes? You might be in this place like Job is describing here that you say, uh, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. You feel like your skin is being destroyed right now. But you gotta trust this. Your Redeemer lives and you will see him with your own eyes, you and not another. Does that make your heart beat a little faster? You and not another. Oof, your Redeemer lives. You will see him. He will stand victoriously over the earth and he will renew all things. I wanna pray for our church right now. I wanna pray for the Bauer family. They've invited me to pray for them. I wanna pray for the Anderson family and for others in our church who are struggling right now. And. Uh, I'll just take a moment of silence as well, and if, if you need prayer, in a moment, I'll ask you if you want to raise your hand, and I'll pray for you too, and we're just going to have a church family moment here. You may be a newcomer, and we don't normally do this, but uh, when the church hurts, we pray for each other, and I wish I could fix what some of you are going through, but I empathize, and I pray. So Father, I thank you for my friends in this room. And as I look across this room, I know that many are enduring great hardship. And I pray, Lord, that they would be comforted today by the words we just read from Revelation 21 and Job 19, that there will be a day in which you will wipe away every tear from every eye and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain because you have made all things new. And we long for that day when you will make all things new. And we trust today that, that still our Redeemer lives and one day we will see you. And you have that for us, not for everyone else, not for the whole world, but for us specifically you have it. And so we internalize this truth, God, that we will get to see you with our own eyes and when we do, you will make all things right. You will over and overturn every act of injustice and everything that we cannot explain today will one day be explained. And so we trust in you with our fears and our sorrows and our doubts. Father, as one body, we pray specifically for Charles and Kristen that you would maintain their strength when they have run out of it that you would keep giving them your sustenance to get through this horribly difficult time. We do pray for Isaiah. Lord, that you would sustain him, that you would grant comfort to his body, that you would stay the damage to his brain, and that you would grant 
the Bauer family the sustaining grace that they are going to need for the days and weeks and months to come. Would you please help them today? Would you help us to love them well? Father, we pray for the Anderson family as well. I, I thank you for Ralph and Sharon and their tremendous love for their son, Scott. And uh, I pray, God, that you would sustain Scott and Anderson as they grieve, or Scott and I pray that you sustain Ralph and, and Sharon as they grieve over the passing of their son, Scott, that you would lift them up when they feel weak and overwhelmed and you would draw near to them today. If you're in a spot today that you need prayer, perhaps someone's done you wrong, perhaps you're dealing with some illness or relational struggle, would you just raise your hand and I want to pray for you. Oh. Father, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters all across this room who have courageously said, I, I need the help of the Lord Jesus Christ right now. You are the great shepherd, Lord Jesus, so I pray that you would help every one of them. You care for them, that you would sustain them, that you would lift up their arms when they are weak, that they would find that you are surrounding them in their pain, and they are never alone, that they are loved by God and loved by this church family, and we will surround them. Hold my brother, hold my sister. Draw them near to you right now, God. Father, we hold on to the truths of your word which tells us you do not treat our wounds as if they were not serious, but you draw near to the brokenhearted and you bind up our wounds. And so for all of these prayer requests that are represented by each of these hands, would you bind up these wounds? Would you grant us hope as we look to the cross, as we anticipate the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, and as we know, that one day you will overturn every injustice and you will reign victoriously on the earth. We give you all glory, Lord Jesus. In your mighty name we pray together. Amen. Let's continue.